0: All right. Well, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with the Beatitudes. Just a little review here, just quickly to kind of go through what we did last week. Was um, uh, the Beatitudes the sermon on the mount? Uh, you know, is uh, you know a very popular passage. It's something that many people have written about, taught about. Um, but sermon isn't probably the most precise word. It's rather a teaching. So Jesus is acting like a rabbi. Um, Now, we also kind of came to the conclusion that when we interpret the Beatitudes, uh, since the Beatitudes actually don't explicitly say who the blessed are, oftentimes we think of ourselves first, but rather than thinking of ourselves first as we apply the Beatitudes to our lives, we need to think about Jesus first, so how these apply to Jesus first. So, Um, which means then the Beatitudes are not something that is a, like, um, well, here, the message of the sermon is not a demand driving the Christian to an impossible more perfection, but it comes to the Christian as a demand fulfilled already in Christ, which is now made possible for believers since it, it has first reached its demands in Christ. So, um... Yeah, your, your first thought, although I didn't fix that part, first though, first thought is always Jesus. Um, and that will be very helpful when we, you know, start discussing some of these uh, Beatitudes here in a minute. But before that, before we get to the actual content, we always have to remember that the Beatitudes is part of a larger tapestry, and in the background are specific Old Testament passages and Old Testament characters. And as you read Bailey, he'll bring out some of those Old Testament passages and a little bit of the Old Testament characters. But Jesus, uh, Moses and Jesus, Moses is pretty prominent in the Beatitudes because like Moses, Jesus also goes on top of a mountain, but it's not just Moses now, it's a whole group of people. So Jesus is one who's greater than Moses and For those initial listeners, that's kind of a big deal because Moses is a big deal for those first listeners of Jesus' teaching. All right, so I think think we just got through the first one, right? Poor in spirit? All right. um, There we go. So now we're going to talk about blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, This is the second beatitude. Um, By the way, uh, if you don't have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, just so we have it, because we'll be, theoretically, we should be (laughs) flipping through the Gospel of Matthew today. All right. Now, um, several years ago, it was either just before entering seminary or kind of my first year in seminary. Um, I was at my parents' house up in Wisconsin, Holly and I, and we, um, I remember it was a cool day, so I don't know exactly if it was fall or spring, but uh, we had Jehovah Witnesses come by, and my mom was like, get them out of (laughs) here. She's like, don't answer the door, they'll go away eventually. My mom used to hide? Yep. I think that's, that's exactly how uh, my mom was thinking, but I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to these people, because, you know, I thought, hey, if worse comes to worse, I'll just tell them get off my property, you know, but uh, not, well, kind of lay claim to my parents' property, I guess, there, but anyways, um, the first passage they read, we'd like to share a word. The first passage they read was the Beatitudes. But rather than saying blessed, they said happy. Now, the the reason why they did that was to get me to think that everything I've been taught was not correct. So they they wanted to say happy, and then then they brought up the word actual cross um, in Scripture. It's not really there. The word is a pole for a pole, because, you know, Jesus carries the beam. And then they set them on this pole, right? Well, okay. That's not going to shake my faith. <laughs> but I already knew that. Anyways, so, but I said, happy. Boy, that's kind of a strange translation, especially related to this one. Yeah. Boy, that seems kind of peculiar. Yeah, well, I said, happy. I mean, what is that? Well, that so I should be happy when I'm mourning. That seems, that seems kind of hard to do. But they didn't really want to talk about that. They wanted to get to the cross business. No. So, so but I, that's always stuck in my brain about how they translate it as happy versus blessed when it comes to mourning. Uh, the reason why, well, it's the, it's complex, right? Because uh, in in terms of the Greek, you, you could technically translate it as, as happy. But there's the active versus passive voice here. So... Okay, so when one mourns, if we all have mourned, we know that being happy is antithetical towards that. I mean, no one feels happy, uh, unless you want to redefine what happiness means, I guess. But, um, but the idea of being blessed, because happy is something that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Being blessed is something that happens to me. So there's the passive versus the active. And when one is mourning... You're not real active. Holly? Yeah, also and that goes related to, like, hey, we can redefine what happiness means. And I, I don't know what the Jehovah Witnesses were really getting at, but um, that's exactly right. So happiness relates to emotion. Blessed means there, there's an action being done to a person. And then, as we stated before, I think we did, it's a, it's a status. We are blessed. Mary? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's ex- yeah. Oh yeah. See this. Hey, that's what I. That's what I was about to write right there. But before we get to that, that's First Thessalonians. Thessalonians. What Mary's talking about. Krista. Yeah, rejoicing, joy. Now, I do. I do have a certain kind of fundamental issue with. Uh, funerals being, quote-unquote, celebrations, um, because it's it's kind of a denial of the reality of the power of death. I mean, death is really kind of a... That is a bummer. Um, however, Krista, the use, the, using the word rejoice is very important because rejoice is attached, obviously, to joy, right? I mean, rejoice, joy comes from the same root word. And joy... Is always atta- now, if we think about biblically speaking, joy is always attached not to our emotions per se, but to, um, well, to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's John chapter uh, 10 and 16, where Jesus says, you know, I, I've come so that you might have my joy and that your joy may be complete. So joy is, is not only a feeling, but it's also a, a status that I am joyful or, um, and then when you are joyful, then you can rejoice. The thing is, though, is that when you see happiness and death, as, I mean, when someone dies, I'm happy. So just think about this. I mean, this is, that's a very dangerous way of thinking, right? Because now who, I mean, the, the one of the bombers, right, was uh, shot by the police and, The Boston Bombers. So are we happy about that? No. Um, We're not, because it's tragedy all around, right? Yeah. So, um, but now, what is the Christian's response to tragedy? We mourn the loss, but at the same time... uh, those who mourn as they are in Jesus Christ are still blessed. First Thessalonians 4.13. Does anybody know what that says off the top of their head? We might have to turn to it. So let's turn to it. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Anyways, the complexity now, back to the Jehovah's Witnesses thing, is that what my whole question is about happiness and mourning is, what does that do to our image of who God is? Are we really happy when one dies? We could be because... Well, it it does create moral problems for what life is all about and who God is. First Thessalonians 4.13. Does anyone have it right there real quick? I guess I could turn to it. but it. All right, Cindy, Cindy, go ahead and read it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's right. So, mourning and grieving. So, that goes back to Krista's point, is that we do grieve, but at the same time, we don't grieve without hope. Hope changes everything. Um, Because here's the thing, when one, okay, so now when we, if we mourn a loss of a loved one, and we are under the impression that we should not mourn, then what do I feel about my mourning? How do I feel about my mourning? Guilty. Now, I mean, the red, the the, the bing, bing, bing should all go off and be like, that's not right. Because all of a sudden now our mourning and our grieving is a sign of a lack of faith. Oh, geez. Okay. It's also contrary to Scripture because Jesus precisely did what? When he went to Lazarus, he, he grieved, he mourned. Holy smokes. In fact, well, did I write this down? This is a good question. Ah, uh, yeah, I didn't. I did write the scripture down, but uh, he wept. O- what were we going to say, Carol? He wept over yeah, he wept over Jerusalem. So there's this great under. Yeah. So Holly. Um, I don't know where. Someone- the. Uh, okay, slow down here. Then, okay, So when we are when we enter into the new age, ooh, that doesn't sound right. The new creation. When the the end of ages come to the end of ages, uh, and we enter into so Revelation chapter twenty one, uh, the new heavens and new earth. There will be no tears. There will be no warning. Yet yeah, there that that will be done with. Because because it's a, it's a whole different new reality. Now that that is kind of hard to understand because. It's kind of over the horizon. God all that's, in that's right. I know, but I'm aware. Well, that's, that's in Revelation. So the, the, the question would be then, so this goes back to what Holly is saying, and I don't know if that's what she meant to say, but so as we enter into heaven, what is actually coming down our eyes? Yeah, tears. Now we don't, I don't ever. we don't really ever talk about that passage in that way. Usually people have that in funerals mm-hmm. to be joyful. But if we actually look at this passage, we're entering into this presence with, with tears that need to be wiped away. And I don't know what that means exactly, but that's what the Bible says. And so we, we can infer something from that. We just don't want to go too far because, um, yeah, that's pretty powerful though, right? Uh, Ted Con, we had a family night here at St. John a few weeks or months ago or two months ago. And Ted Kahn and Sandy, they're members here. They're uh, uh, therapists, and he talks about how um, grieving is like a gospel understanding of things because when one grieves, one is 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 sitting in the place of pain, but at the same time, it, it there's a movement to it, meaning out of it. I mean, there's a movement away from. Pain and how do we get from that? Well, uh, those who go going to the women's retreat, we might talk a little bit about this. Um, you know, mourning and grieving is sometimes we see as a sign of weakness, right? Especially in our culture, especially related to men. Like, we're not supposed to show emotions, we're not supposed to cry. Men, that is. Um, and so, grieving is always kind of a like a no, no, we don't do that, but the reality is is so so how do we how do we handle that? Uh, we numb ourselves a lot of times like we Denial. yeah, I mean yeah, so how how we how we get to that whole point is is very complex, but uh, Jesus, though the blessed are those who mourn, so we're actually in this situation, but we don't mourn as if we don't have any hope, but we mourn because we empathize. With the tragedy of what's actually happening in our life, uh, so yeah, God will comfort those who suffer/slash mourn. Well, how? What does God promise? Jesus, because you got to think about Jesus first in this, because Jesus does mourn, and in Matthew, it, He mourns most explicitly when He weeps over Jerusalem. You know, He comes up. Yeah, Nancy. Yes, right. <laughs> That's exactly Well, and so this is the point of reference, Nancy, that uh, as I run into somebody who's grieving and mourning, h- how can I empathize with this person if, you know like, you know, uh, let's take something I don't know. I don't have any sisters. So I don't know what it's like to lose a sister. OK? Now uh, this is kind of trivial, in the sense of I know what I know. Conceivably, I will know what it's like to lose a sibling. But, you know, but I don't have to have a sister to empathize with somebody who's lost a sister. Why? Because of what Nancy just said. There is this, there's this tragedy in the world that connects all of us and that we can be with the other person um, so we can empathize with that person. But if, Yeah, so it, it, yeah, it doesn't have to be so specific as our own individual circumstance um, or even somebody else's individual circumstance. It can be really anybody's, the world's. Yeah, good, good, Nancy, thanks for saying that. I should have thought of that. All right, so what does God promise Jesus? He, well, Jesus, God promises Jesus' his presence. He also promises suffering. But then he also promises community. Um, okay, so Jesus mourns. Is that really? Yeah, he also he actually mourns over his own death. I mean, like he's he's not excited about this. Um, but then also unbelieving Jerusalem, and and so let's kind of explore why would why would Jesus mourn over Jerusalem? What what is he what is he mourning over? Yeah. Him. What does he does? Anyone remember what he says? I I, I can. Well, yeah, pull you in, but like what? Like a mother, yeah, like a a mother, and the chicks. Oh my word! I mean, that's just oof. That that's pretty emotional. uh, uh, Is there really? That's great. (laughs) I mean, so yeah, so Jesus when he mourns, I mean, I mean, this is again. We gotta well, we gotta slow down when we read the Bible a lot of times, and we kind of just race over that, but. What if those, I mean, what if those words are actually true? Jesus is mourning like a mother who loses her children. Okay, tears start rolling very quickly in all of us, because that would be hard, right? I mean, mourning the loss of your children. So anyways, so this is kind of a big deal. We're no joking around here. This, we're not pretending. And as Mary, well, Mary's not here, we're not denying anything. We're, we're, this is real. Now, the thing is, though, so how is Jesus comforted when, he is, when he's actually mourning over these things? Well, the resurrection is one. But part of the resurrection, so in this new life, I mean, we all kind of gain hope from that. That's the first Thessalonians verse that Cindy read. part of the resurrection is that he gets all that back. Jesus gets the community back. The children he lost, he receives back in the resurrection. Now, does anybody know what kind of Old Testament tapestry that that sounds like? Somebody who lost all his children and then got them all back. Job, right. So Job is a very tragic character. Uh, And if you, I mean, it's it's a long book of Downers, but this idea is that, like, how is he grieving and mourning through all these losses? And, you know, what kind of voices is he listening to? How do you deal with all that? So, Job's very, really, really helpful. But how Job is comforted and how Jesus is comforted are, are analogous. So, Jesus, yeah, so Job gets a new life. I mean, he doesn't die and rise again, but I mean, he gets this whole new life after the tragedy's over. But, um, Part of that new life is a whole new community. So God's presence, suffering, and community is how Jesus is comforted. And in the same way, we could probably see how that happens then even in our own life, how God's presence, God's promise. So the suffering, uh, so yeah, how, how is that comforted when uh, you're promised to suffer as a teacher, Jesus? Okay, the, the, the comfort in that is, is that there's, not false, there's no false expectations. So we we come into a situation, and we're we're mourning. Well, if we're not supposed to, if we knew if we know this is this is happening, uh, then we don't feel bad about it. You know, we don't have that shame or guilt, depending on you know who we are. Um, So that that's why that's comforting to realize that this will happen, and these feelings happen, and that that's normal. But then on the on so there's more to it than that though I mean you just, you just don't feel bad all the time but there's there's actually a, a new community that comes along with the the resurrection the new life. All right, I just I'm gonna keep moving quickly. I mean we we could spend all like we could probably spend the rest of the spring on this stuff. Um oh so blessed oops I'm sorry hang on. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth or the land or. However, your Bible is translated. All right. So, what does meek mean? Uh, I can't remember. if This is Bailey or David Scare, but meek in this kind of circumstance, they make no claim on God. Meaning, you know, they're not saying, "Hey, God, you should be this way." So, they they're coming into God's presence completely, kind of uh, hands off or, or, or humble. Um, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Hopefully, you guys turn back to Matthew, but Matthew eleven will come up again, so we might want to just keep it. But take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Um, that's the same word used. So it's oh yeah. So it's not translated the same in English Bibles. So you have this. Um, so Jesus makes this confession that, that he is meek. And as you learn... Did I write this down? Yeah, okay, good. The meekness of the third beatitude refers to an internal condition of a person before God and known only to him. So only to God. So when one comes before God making no claims on God, this is not only... So yeah, so only God knows this. So in a sense, God only knows the heart. You know, can read the heart, judge the heart. The invitation to come to him is offered by Jesus in his humility. So now we're back to the uh, relational aspect of Jesus and the uh, uh, empathizing. That's very important. Because... The women's retreat, by the way, is in my back of my brain, so I'm just going to talk, I mean, I'll mix these messages here a little bit. So the word meek and strength don't normally go together. Meek and weakness kind of go together. But Jesus, all-powerful, strong Jesus, invites uh, followers in his meekness, in his humility, so, in a sense, in his weakness. And at that point, weakness and strength now become kind of solidified together. And so, as we, th- you know, as we read these Beatitudes, we don't want to necessarily impose kind of a political worldview on it, or sociological understanding of what strength is, um, that's right, because that's what it is here. Yeah, who will inherit the land? Meek versus powerful. When we... When we uh, sounds like it's pretty rough down there, huh? That's right. Yeah, $15 an hour, so there's plenty. Uh, they, they're doing well. And they're, and they're very nice, so... Anyway, so so who will inherit the land? This goes now. This this understanding. So Jesus, as Jesus's message is preached to these first listeners, the the climate, kind of the sociological climate, is that uh, not only have they problems with the Jewish reality, but they also have this whole uh, Roman reality. And what Jesus is saying here is that you inherit the land by a means that's completely foreign to the way kind of the quote-unquote world works. So you have the meek versus powerful. And in that circumstance, you have the zealots who are like the, you know, the people who want to drive out all the uh, Samaritans and all the Romans out of Israel and set up this kingdom. But then you have the Herodians who basically play both sides of the fence both the Roman side and the Jewish side, and they're just, they are just want to make a lot of money. And then you have the Romans who, you know, just want to conquer the world and set up their form of peace. Or you have Jesus. And the promise of God to the meek is something greater than what the powerful can give because the promise is filled according to Jesus. So you have this you have this, this reality where, where Jesus promises something that is, uh, is, more, is uh, greater, I wouldn't say necessarily more powerful because I don't want to mix the words, but greater meaning that whether you are um, the Roman emperor or the, the slave, you will inherit the land. I mean, the promises for both people and that both the meek, Uh, applies to the slave and the emperor. So you have this cruciform understanding of what it means to be meek and inherit the land. I should probably explain that more. But versus the political. I mean, especially, you know, in the United States, we think about, like, you know, our leaders. We we, we need to pray for them. But we always think, hey, if I have the right guy in office, everything's going to be okay. So all of a sudden now we're putting our trust in, in these leaders. And on a human level, we've got to trust our leaders. But we never want to replace that. So we don't want to, rep- we don't want to put our trust in our leaders that is false. We always want to make sure that we uh, put Jesus center in the center. So now part of the promise then as far as that's greater is related to the land and the earth. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, you guys might know that off the top of your head. Um, go and make disciples of what? All nations. So Jesus, as he commissions the 12 apostles, is saying, okay, go ahead and what? Inherit the earth. But how do you inherit the earth? By baptizing and teaching. Completely different. The thing is, though, is that that promise echoes... Well, so now the promised land is not attached to, what, a physical country, i.e. Israel, but it's now the entire world, which is attached to the promise, the original promise, to Abraham. So, yeah, Jesus universalizes this. All nations. Oh, so the powerful want to take over the world by what means? By force, conquering, yep. But Jesus actually already has the world, so he gives it. And that's, that's a big difference. Um, we probably won't get to this today, but um, what this means then as a Christian enters into the world, you know, uh, by, you know, by uh, making, making disciples of all nations, as they enter into the world... They don't enter into the world as if what they they don't they this is their this is this is our place so we enter into this with great confidence because Jesus already is the Lord the Lord of the world I mean this is it uh, so the earth is His by way of His relationship to the Father so Jesus doesn't have to take over the world I mean there's that you're not taking over anything. You're just you're just laying claim to what's already yours, but in meekness, humility, not in in power and strength and like tyranny, the like the Crusades or any other kind of war. So it's it's kind of it's it's very paradoxical. So I, I'm not explaining this as well as I probably should, but um. So what, we, so what we, our image in our mind is that as Christians go and make disciples of all nations, one can understand that as taking over the world. However, if you understand taking over the world in terms of humility, on the surface, it will look the exact opposite of taking over the world. So there's this. Krista. Yes, his might and power is most explicitly shown where? On the cross, dying, which is probably his weakest moment, right? In a sense? Yep. So that's the paradox. It, that, that, so that goes back to, yeah, see, so I didn't do a good job <laughs> of explaining this. So this goes back to the cruciform versus the political so Jesus' power and might, and we'll see actually this in, in some of the other, maybe the Beat, maybe we'll get to it, the Beatitudes, is that Jesus' power and might is, 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 is so, um, on the surface, it looks, it looks like the opposite. And that's why one needs faith to really kind of see what's happening. Jan. He goes and pays his own bill. He receives him to live in the poor mansions. Yeah, right, the, the mansions. He goes Yeah, it, uh, yep, that's right. Holly? Uh, uh, theology of Christ, the theology of glory. That's right. So the theology of glory always looks towards the um, um, all-powerful, almighty... Again, Jesus is all-powerful and almighty, though. It's just that... Yeah, by the way of the cross. So the Gospel of John is very instructive, and I don't want to get out of the Gospel of Matthew so much. So, um, But John, uh, um, Jesus' glory is shown precisely when he's lifted up on the cross. In the Gospel of John, I mean, that's what Jesus says. Um, well, um, we're gonna just skip over this little part because we'll that we'll probably come back to that part where we find Jesus find you. So uh, hunger and thirst. I'm at, let, hang on. So let's uh, let's actually skip ahead here real quick. Uh, I'll come back, but uh, this goes related to what Holly just said. Uh, okay, here we go. So in the Gospel of Matthew, as in the Gospel of Mark. Where do people see Jesus as the Son of God? Okay? Well, the devil calls Jesus the Son of God, and the demons call Jesus the Son of God. but there's really only two spots in Matthew. there's only one spot in Mark, where people call Jesus the Son of God. One is the crucifixion. That's Matthew 27:54. Well, no, son of David. Yeah. This is very interesting. The other time is after Jesus stills the storm on the boat, they worship him as the son of God, and then the next thing, what do they do? They kind of basically do the opposite of what it would mean to be worshiping Jesus. So so the one spot where Jesus is most clearly the Son of God, according to humans. I mean, the demons already know who he is and the devil, but we don't really want to be associated with those people. Right? So, um, we want to be associated with the guy who truly confesses Jesus as the Son of God, and it's the centurion. Now, when I say that, I mean, other people get Jesus throughout the gospel. It's just that he actually says this. I mean, it's quoted in the Bible. Um, So, yeah, right. Well, he's actually dead, which even drives it even farther down the line in terms of this paradox. Jesus is actually dead when he's known as the Son of God. Well, he's, he confesses him as the Messiah, the Christ. That's Matthew, yeah. We can talk at Matthew 16. Martha does not call him the Son of God crazy right well that's john that's john chapter 11 in the matthew i'm talking about in the gospel of matthew john jesus is the son of god all over the place This is not really it's not really interesting but yeah the son of the living god right the christ the son of the living god yeah because now what happens though right after that though oh i'm at the wrong chapter here um so, yeah, so, just keep reading, Carol, and we'll see if Peter gets it. Well, yeah, right, but, I mean, so Jesus calls him Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, and then what does Jesus say back to Peter? He calls him what? Satan! Satan. Well, Satan quite gets it, I would say. The demons don't quite understand Jesus either, but they call him by the right name, too. Yeah, so, um yeah. So, okay, so, again, demons and the devil understand Jesus as the Son of God. Peter does in this circumstance, but who is he associated with? The demons and the devil. So, again, we don't really want, we want that. That, that, I mean, to be honest, this is where, well, we're away on a tangent here, but, uh, yeah, people, yeah, Peter's confession, I think, has to have a little asterisk by it because he says the right words, but he doesn't quite get it quite yet. Now, Right. But where does Jesus known as the Son of God? Precisely where? And he, dies. and he dies. So, I know, crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, the Bible is very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Um. I kind of compare it to us, though. Because I think oh, you I better, yes. And every time I study it, I That's right. I did before, that's and right. That's kind of how they are. You know, we all in our unbelief, we lose stuff, but we never got it in the first place. You know, understood. That's right. And and so so that's why I, the asterisk I didn't want to get too far on the tangent here. That's exactly right. So so when we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, what do we do? We well, we just go back to the beginning. And we start over again. And we go back in the beginning. So as we keep reading it over and over again, and I think we talked about this last year, the Gospel of Mark is precisely set up that way. Matthew is too, but um, you go back to the beginning, and so you read this over, so you get back to Matthew 16, and you realize, yeah, Peter's right, but he's also not right. Because you don't under- that confession becomes true when you understand that confession through the cross, but you only understand that confession through the cross if you've actually read the entire gospel. So, so you've got to go back to the beginning and reread it again. Does that make sense? So you, you get through it. You're like, oh, that's what it means to be the Son of God. I got it. I've got to go back to the beginning and read this over again. Yeah. Krista. Um, I, I the, the oh, yeah, right. That's right. Oh yeah. I mean, exactly. So the so uh, yeah, So the disciples now. Jesus ascends after the fifty days. What, are, what I mean, what are the disciples going to do? Well, they're going to start what retelling. The story. They're going to go back to the beginning. They're going to keep saying things over and over again, and as life, because life is now changing after the death of Jesus, in Jerusalem. I mean, you have the whole uh, Paul persecutions, and then eventually the seventy AD rolls around, and Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed, and then you got the Roman persecutions. It's a mess, right? So people, as as life comes crashing down on them, life and death, what are they? What are they going to turn to? Well, they're going to retell. They're going to keep retelling the stories because, lo and behold, they realize that what they, we're jumping ahead to the end of the Beatitudes, what they did to Jesus now is coming upon upon them. And they're like, oh man, this is happening everywhere. we got to start writing this down for people. Yeah. And um, as, uh, as Manon said, he is the son of God. Right. So, you know, I think that... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, this is very... Yes, Krista, you are absolutely right. Right. Um, uh, actually, this is related to hunger. And th- I think it's hunger and thirst. I might not have talked about it. Okay, well, I didn't. But anyways, this understanding that when we... Uh, uh, do we really understand what's going on in the Bible? Well, kind of, sort of. Yes, we do, and no, we don't. See, faith, kind of by definition, what? Has a room for not knowing. <laughs> if you If you knew everything, then faith would be kind of... Non-existent, right? Uh, faith and certainty don't really go together. Now, when I say certain, I should clarify that. Certainty meaning I really know something, like beyond a shadow of a doubt. So you've got to understand what knowledge means here. So like in this hunger and thirst beatitudes, Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're blessed when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, not when you are, what? Yeah, when, when you're all content with it. That's oftentimes what we think, right? Oh, I'm real blessed here because I have a full belly. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Again, I'm using the metaphor again because I feel blessed when I'm full. Um, so you're blessed when you're, you're, you're striving, you, when you're hungry and thirsty. And the thing is, though, you shall be satisfied. But that's a paradox there, because when you're... Because, so if I'm satisfied, does that mean then I'm not hungry and thirsty for righteousness anymore? No, exactly, No. So that, this is the thing. You're living in the presence of God where you have empty hands. God's God's giving you what you need, um, but at the same time, you always say, more please. And I think, I think I mean... Yeah, righteousness isn't something that will make you overweight. You can pig out on it as much as you want without any side effects. In fact, it's the opposite, which is very strange. The other side is... For those oh so the other side I didn't I didn't proofread this so the other side would be when when we find ourselves not hungry hungry or thirsty for righteousness it's kind of a bummer but now we're we're at that point now where we really need to change our ways oops Carol the evening, yeah right in the yes. Yeah no so for those who didn't get a chance to read it the how uh, uh Kenneth Bailey in the book recounts the story how he's going on this little trek through the desert and uh their water container like blows a hole in it and it all goes away and they're kind of like two, like they're in the point of no return now they just got to keep going to this oasis and it was like a two day, it was like more than one day or so it was a couple days right yeah, one and half and yeah. And it was like 110 degrees out at night. I mean, in the shade, or was, I mean, it was crazy hot. And he, he says it's like he was trying to swallow. They couldn't eat or something because it was like sandpaper in his throat. Like too, like he had literally had not enough moisture to actually swallow. Yeah, they keep going. That's right. Yeah, right. You, you need to have it. Yeah, I mean, this, this is very interesting. So, um, Luther says in the catechism, if we don't hunger and thirst for the Lord's supper, that we should check to see if we're still alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> put your hand. Put your hand in your shirt. And make sure you have a heartbeat. Yeah, right. I love that. I love that. That I love that image. That, Carol, but you're absolutely right, though. Is that, in, in in here in the United States, you know, hunger and thirst. Like we don't ever thirst like that, ever. I mean, we just don't... I don't think a lot of people actually do, because... Unless you're stuck in the desert, I guess, but... Or the, Cogba, or the Trail, where there's no water to so the Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but but this is the thing, though, is that so now we have images here, and if we have the kind of the Old Testament background, we have the people in, wandering in the desert, so the, the children of Israel. And... Um, yeah, like, what kind of images does that create? That's not like a great... I mean, it's a very vivid, powerful image, but how many of us really are interested in entering into that story? I'm not. Then you So in the line and they will be second. Yeah, right. So now, so now we have this kind of, again, paradox, and what seems to be, on the outside, somebody who's hungry and thirsty... But at the same time, they are satisfied. I mean, there's the promise, there's the divine passive, where it's it's sure it will happen. Um, but to actually believe that is is very challenging. The other thing too was is that um, yeah, so righteousness. Kenneth Bailey makes a big deal about this, and I, I wrote that down too. Um, righteousness really deals with God's saving saving acts. So when you're striving, you're striving for God's what? I mean, God's action, God's love would be the probably the most simplest way to say it. So, compassion. yeah, compassion, mercy, basically whatever God does for your uh, salvation. And you know, so now we start realizing that that uh, we don't. I mean, there might be a day where we don't think about God. Just live life. Thinking that we're, we're okay, we're doing all right. Anyways, I, I think, I mean, this is something where, um, yes, yeah, so, oh, so how does Jesus' hunger and thirst for righteousness? What, what would be the, the first way, or first part of the story? Where does Jesus' hunger and thirst? Yeah, right. The temptation in the desert. That's a very vivid example. Um, that's kind of set the tone. I mean, then you can just basically say the rest of the gospel because, it's, but then it kind of comes to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane and then in crucifixion, where he's, he, he wants, he asks his father to what? Remove the cup, right? He's hungry and thirsting for God's righteousness, the saving act, you know. He's wrestling with what that all means. Just like, you know, obviously we do too. So, um, but the most obvious is in in, uh, Matthew chapter 3. That's in the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) But that would be the same thing. That's right. He's set for, he's he's hungry and thirsty for the righteousness. Yep, that's exactly right. Blessed are the merciful... You know, I think this is, I mean, obviously, as it applies to Jesus, Jesus is the merciful one. Um, Yeah, mercy and compassion, those are correlated. And those are basically the ability to empathize. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. So empathy, empathy is not simply a feeling... But it's the actual physical act of being with one another one. So Jesus can show mercy by healing the blind man, healing the Canaanite woman, because he knows he knows the, the, what it means to be actually blind and an outsider and uh, the pain of losing a child, Jerusalem. We already talked about that. Um, Oh, I didn't actually... We should. I should erase this bottom line because I didn't really do anything with this. Jesus tells others to learn what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. That is an important part of the conversation, but you know, I don't really have anything to say about that right now. But um, I think that's really important, though, is the empathy. So, blessed are the merciful. So, Jesus, the, the way he can empathize with somebody is as he enters into this world and feels their pain... There's struggle, and he actually does. I mean, he actually enters into, that's Emmanuel, Matthew chapter 1, 23. He's with us, so he's the merciful one because he's with us. But at the same time, he just doesn't wallow in, in our, our struggle. He actually is the one who relates and says, follow me. So it's like the guy who fell in the hole. I told you that story, right? Yeah. Okay. Boy, I don't know. We uh, we have a few more, but we got to go. It's time to go. Um. Let me see here. I mean, we can keep going. I, I actually, to be honest, I, I really like the the last. These last two are really important for me, and the pure and heart is very important. So, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I don't have my book here with me. What's after the Beatitudes chapter? That's right. So we're going to start the Lord's Prayer. Go ahead and read the first chapter of the Lord's Prayer. But I think we'll finish up with the pure in heart, the persecuted. Well, I mean, we'll just kind of cruise through this. I don't know. What do you guys want to do? All right, finish the Beatitudes. All right, let's pray. Amen. So I guess you don't have to read the Lord's Prayer of Chapter, because if we're going to just finish the Beatitudes, we'll go through those last three, but then we'll actually kind of review, we'll do the Jesus and you at the end for all of them. And that will be helpful.